we'll maybe make a... S- Uh, we'll maybe make a start with our question and answer uh, session. Uh, thank you for uh, taking Mark's uh, instruction, and there, ha- there are now plenty of questions, and hopefully we actually can get through them all. Uh, so uh, we'll start off with uh, one from, I suppose, relating to yesterday. Maybe some of you weren't here yesterday morning. Uh, Andy looked at, well, I suppose there were two sessions, but it was between sort of chapters two and seven. Uh, and it refl- he referred to the Mosaic Law and the tablets of stone that are mentioned at, in chapter 4. Uh, and so there's a question relating to the law. Uh, well, there's sort of three layers in this question. So uh, which laws are you referring to that made people become servants of Satan and unbelievers? And then how do I follow God's commands today without misusing the law? And then the third one is how do I differentiate between these laws and commands? Um, yeah, okay. Um, I've had a number of uh, conversations about the implications of this stuff for how Christians view Old Testament law, how much Old Testament law applies to Christian life, what do Christians do with the law, all that kind of stuff. This is a big, big and complicated subject, and it's not a kind of proof text answer subject. It's more a how does the Bible fit together? Question. So it's big and complicated. Uh, I'll try and say something about that, kind of based from this letter, but jumping out of it a bit. But I'm not going to cover absolutely everything. There's, you know, you can find loads of books out there, big fat books on Christians and the law. I'm not going to do all that. Let me just say uh, from, from this letter, look at chapter 3. Um, 2 Corinthians 3. There is, I think, in this letter, no doubt that Paul's major opponents in Corinth are from Jerusalem, Jewish, appear to be from within the Christian community in Jerusalem, and that they want the Gentile believers to come under the authority of the law of Moses in one way or another. Now, precisely the flavor of that is not absolutely clear from this letter. In other letters, uh, Galatians, for example, the same sort of initiative is definitely you must be circumcised and you must obey certain festivals and Sabbaths and all that kind of thing. Uh, Paul resolutely resists that. He will not have the Gentile believers put under that. Uh, What is the logic of his unwillingness? No doubt his accusers have said, Paul does that for Gentiles because he wants to soften the message for Gentiles, to make it easier for Gentiles to come in. And again, he resists that accusation all the way through the New Testament. Um, In chapter 3, Paul doesn't merely contrast his ministry with the ministry of the false apostles. He contrasts his new covenant ministry with Moses' old covenant ministry. So he takes it back a step and he says, basically, there was a glorious old covenant ministry, but something now bigger and more glorious has come. In other words, we've moved on from that Old Testament area. Things are not operating the same between God and humanity quite uh, now as they were back then. Something new has come. However, he also says in chapter 3 that uh, when the people of Israel currently read the Old Covenant, they are veiled in their understanding of it. In other words, not only have we moved on to something new, but Israel, looking back on it now, misreads the Old. So, We've moved on in salvation history and they don't understand the meaning of the old bit. So we've got two levels of difficulty there. Now, let me ask the question, how is it that Palestinian Judaism misreads the law of Moses? Well, let me give you one suggestion about that. I wonder if you've ever noticed in the Gospels how when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, there are two things that keep coming up. 
areas of controversy. One is he does stuff on the Sabbath that they think is illegal. That comes up all the time. The second is he interacts with Gentiles in ways that they think are illegitimate. You know, he eats with Levi and his friends. Or Mark chapter 7, his disciples come in from the marketplace and eat food with hands unwashed. Why do you, why does the Palestinian Jew in the first century come in from the marketplace and eat food with hands unwashed? Answer, because the marketplace is the place you meet Gentiles. And the first century Palestinian Jew thinks it is very, very important that we may remain distinct from the Gentiles and that we keep the Sabbath. Those are the two big areas that come up all the way through the Gospels. Why do they think that? Well, it's very notable that they have learned something from their history. Why was Israel thrown into exile? For not keeping the law and for being contaminated by interference with Gentiles. That's why Israel is thrown out. What do the people who returned from exile do in Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi? They marry the pagans and they don't keep the Sabbaths. So the thing that led to Israel's exile, their disobedience to the law, continued after they returned from exile. No change. But in first century Palestinian Judaism, they're no longer doing that. During that four or five hundred years, a penny has dropped. Our ancestors were much too close to the Gentiles. We need to separate ourselves. And our ancestors were not rigorous about law keeping. We need to be rigorous about law keeping. I take it that that is the atmosphere that persists in Palestinian Judaism, even Christian Palestinian Judaism. They've learned something. However, the question is, have they learned the right thing from their history? Paul refers to Israel under Moses as uh, chapter 3, verse 7, the ministry of death, which is a fairly negative statement, isn't it? In what sense is Moses... Israel under Mosaic law, the ministry of death. Well, in this sense, that no matter that this was a nation with massive privileges, spectacular rescue from slavery in Egypt, direct encounter with God at Mount Sinai, numerous visits from the prophets, fantastic rescuers in David and Solomon, great kings, massive prophets, big promises. All that resulted from nationally was, in inverted commas, death. The whole project was a disaster. Why? Because the sin problem is much, much, much bigger than can be dealt with by spectacular rescue from political slavery, direct encounter with God at Mount Sinai, numerous prophets. The sin problem is bigger than that. And if you look back on that history and think as first century Palestinian Judaism does, guys, uh, we, need to stop, we need to stop mucking around with the pagans. Guys, uh, we need to keep the law better. You've simply misread. You've misread the story. The story is meant to make you think, gosh, we need something bigger. We need something better. We, we, something's got to happen. The sin problem is too big to conquer. What is that thing that the whole story pushes towards? God coming in the flesh and joining himself to humanity. Dying for the sins of humanity. His righteousness becoming ours, our sins becoming his. Something of a different order from anything that happened in the Old Testament. If you, if you read the Old Testament story and think, we've got to work harder. We've got to be more obedient. You've misread the story. And I take it that is the nature of the veiling that Paul describes in chapter 3. Not only have we entered a new phase where the big new thing has happened, these guys look back on that old phase and they just get the wrong message from it. You need to work harder. So you need to bring the Gentiles into obedience to the law. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the Sabbaths. They need to do all that stuff. Now, what does that mean for the Christian now? It means that we are now in the phase of salvation history where the big new thing has arrived, the big new thing that everything always pointed towards. Jesus has come. He's done what he's done. He is who he is. 
faith in Christ is the way to carry on the Christian life. That doesn't mean we can't learn from the Old Testament law. Of course it doesn't mean that. But we are no longer Israel under law. The big new thing has arrived. Now, I don't know if anybody wants to come back on that, but I take it that that's the sort of thing that's going on in 2 Corinthians 3. We've entered a new phase, and by the way, contemporary Judaism has misread the old phase. So they've come up with the wrong solution, which is keep the law better. That's not the solution. It never was. The whole story is meant to point towards a bigger and better rescue than that. I don't know if there's anything more sensible I can say about that. Uh, it's a big question of how you read the Bible, how you read the unfolding story. Uh, and I think I'm trying to read it in a way that it's always been pointing towards Jesus and the need for him. And if you don't come up with that at the end and you come up with a kind of law-based thing, you're missing the point. Can I say that uh, we don't have the, quite the same contemporary issues with law as they did? We are not quite bathed in the first century Palestinian Judaism culture in the way that they are, but we do have a tendency as Christians to divide the Christian life into two phases. You enter the Christian life by faith in Christ and faith in him alone, but you continue the Christian life and base your assurance on how obedient you are. We often swap from, we start with a Christ-based assurance and we continue with a personal obedience-based assurance. And I think that is a big problem. You start with faith in Christ and you continue with faith in Christ. Do I need Jesus any less today than I did the day when I started being a Christian? Absolutely not. My sin problem is much, much, much too big for me have to have, you know, in the 20 or 30 years, have, have got on top of that by my own obedience. I will need Jesus just as much every day until the last day. So I think we need to start with a Christ-based assurance and continue with a Christ-based assurance, with repentance and faith every day. Um, folks, if you want to pick that one up afterwards, then do pick that one up. It's a big and complicated question, but I hope that was some help. Uh, I've got two here that are uh, sort of along the same line, so I'll read them both at the same time. Uh, you talked about being wary of people in ministry boasting <coughs> about supernatural experiences or gifts. Do you think that there is still a role for these gifts and experiences today? And connected, uh, what would you say to sincere <coughs> Pentecostal or charismatic friends who are who are urging you to seek manifestations of the Spirit, or oops, I can't read that, but uh, get blessing or filling with the Spirit? Um, <coughs> I think I'd want to distinguish between experiences that one can have and experiences which are urged on all. Um, Paul in chapter 11, which we've just looked at, describes an experience which one can have. <coughs> he had that experience. Is he going to use that as proof that he is the genuine apostle? He is absolutely not using that as proof that he is the genuine apostle. Um, so he points to a whole bunch of other stuff as the proof that he is the genuine apostle. Um, let me say that the Lord can use absolutely anything he chooses to speak to you and direct you in life. The whole creation belongs to him. He's in control of every atom every nanosecond of human time. He is quite capable of using just anything. And indeed, he uses everything all the time in ways that we don't appreciate to direct us and tell us what to do and, and shape our lives in, in ways that we, you know. He just uses everything all the time. He's quite capable of doing anything with our lives anytime. There is a difference between saying that and saying he promises to use everything all the time. 
I think there are ways that the Lord has told us that we will expect him to speak and direct and, and stuff like that. So I think I'm personally um, persuaded that it is helpful for us to speak to one another. We often share with other people the spectacular things that have happened in our lives. And that is not always encouraging for them. Now, it might be encouraging for them, but of course, they always have the potential to make the person say, oh, nothing like that's happened to me. Perhaps I'm not the genuine article. So I think one just needs to be a bit careful before sharing the spectacular and unexpected things. It doesn't mean they're invalid, of course they're valid. You know, the Lord uses all kinds of stuff in our lives. Uh, at that level, he's very personalized in the way he deals with us. But that doesn't mean that every experience is as helpful to recount to someone else as every other experience. So I think I'd want to be encouraging my brothers and sisters with the things that generally the Lord urges us to encourage one another with. Um, so, uh, what sort of things? Well, the truths of Scripture. He he. He, he's not said he's only speaking to us in the scripture, but he's saying that that is the, that is the place where, this, where the Lord promises to speak to us. That is the truth that he promises to use among us. That is the living word that he promises, should, that he urges should dwell richly uh, among us, and so on. So major on that. Um, so I just think one needs to be a bit careful with, with one's private experiences. It, Chapter 11 is a, is a private experience, as far as Paul's concerned, that he'll just allude to, but he's not going to tell you very much, because it's not proof that he's using of his validity. So I just think we oughtn't to use those special personal experiences, if we've had one, as, now I know that I'm a real Christian. How do you know that you're a real Christian? Well, because you've trusted the gospel word in Jesus about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our assurance lies. Jesus has died and risen. I trust the scriptures. I've taken God at his word. That's where my confidence is to lie. Not, I was having a bad time as a Christian. Something really special happened to me. That's where all my assurance is. No, my assurance needs to be a Christ cross scriptures type assurance. Fundamentally, God is perfectly able to give me all sorts of generous other personal things but they won't necessarily help everybody else and so i would say on the the urging people to have experiences that are not generous generally promised to everyone i'd be cautious about that because i think it ends up in 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 a kind of two two-tier spirituality mm -hmm. the people who have had the special experience and the people who ain't had the special experience uh, and that's profoundly unhelpful. That, that really is, I think, the heart of 1 Corinthians, what 1 Corinthians is all about. Uh, where, where does the line between spiritual and unspiritual lie? The Corinthians draw that line through the church. On one side, the people who've had the speaking in tongues thing. On the other side, the people who long to have the speaking in tongues thing. Once you've got the speaking in tongues thing, you're a spiritual in Corinthian eyes. Paul draws the line between spiritual and unspiritual round the Christian church. What marks a person out as a spiritual one? They've got faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's what their life is. So um, that's very important. Do not let the, the spiritual, unspiritual line be drawn through your church, through real believers. That's really unhelpful. Yeah. Okay. Um, and any of you who weren't here for First Corinthians, uh, when Andy was here before, uh, you can listen to all of those uh, talks. They're on the website. Uh, a little bit connected to that, you mentioned Second uh, Corinthians 12 again there. Uh, what do you think Paul means by the third heaven? I don't know. Maybe that. <laughs> he doesn't say, does he? I don't. I suspect that that it is possible that he's borrowing a contemporary phrase from somewhere. But I confess that I've not looked that up. I've absolutely no idea. It sounds splendid, doesn't it? But he's not saying much about that. So you don't know. 
Sorry, that's really unhelpful. You can buy one of the second Corinthians. Yeah, buy one of the cultures. They, they will probably say, mm, could yeah, be this, could be that. Exactly, they might do that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, is the, uh, we had this uh, yesterday, um, and it should be on the first couple of pages of your handout. Um, it's re relating to the other letter uh, written to the Corinthians, uh, which we don't have as part of our canon, or uh, it's not in our Bibles. Yeah. Uh, so if that were found today, uh, would it or should it, should be, it be included in, in the scripture? <laughs> yeah, that's a, kind of, that's a kind of interesting question. The question, I suppose, is it's really a question about how biblical inspiration and canon works, isn't it? Um, Paul evidently wrote more letters than we have in the New Testament. Is it a problem that we lack them? Um, in fact, there are two other Corinthian letters, aren't there? There's the previous letter that he wrote before 1 Corinthians, and there's a severe letter that he wrote between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So there are at least two letters. Um, I take it that our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture needs to be more sophisticated than merely God kind of zapped the mind of an individual so that from that point on all his written words were scripture. That's not right, I don't think. I take it that we have to assume that within the providence of God, God has provided for us the documents that he thinks we need. Um, and that we are not lacking the full measure of spiritual spirit inspiration <laughs> uh, just because we ain't got the previous letter or the severe letter. And so I take it that, that our doctrine of biblical inspiration needs to extend beyond the individuals through whom God wrote and also encompasses the situations which they were writing about. God has seen fit to record not only the person's words, but the person's words about particular situations and not other situations. So I take it that the fact that we have not got the severe letter is a sign that God did not want us to have the severe letter, that it would not have been profitable for us in one way or another to have the severe letter. I don't think I can say anything else more sensible than that. Just think, your doctrine of biblical inspiration needs to, needs to include not just the people, but the particular events that the people are talking about. Um, was Moses always writing God's words in every document that he wrote? Or just the Pentateuch? You know, do you know what I mean? It's a, that question you could extend all over the place. Was the writer of 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Samuel? Did they, you know, what happened to their other writings? Have we lost... The question could be extended forever. Is every letter that every Bible writer ever wrote scripture that we've lost? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that's not, I'm sure that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, someone I find very helpful on that subject is a guy called Michael Kruger. He's written a, a number of books on canon, but he also has a website called Canon Fodder, sort of a play on <laughs> words, but uh, you know, there's some helpful articles he has posted on there. As well as that, over the last few castles, there's been a number of books recently, actually, on the authority of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture and those types of things. Uh, another question relating to the Old Testament. Uh, how were people in the Old Testament saved? <coughs> were people in the Old Testament saved specifically by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross? Yep. Or was it by faith in what <coughs> God had revealed at that time. Yeah. Uh, example, Abraham believed God and it is credited yeah. to him as righteousness uh, regarding the promises made to him. Yeah, uh, let me say this is again a big whole Bible fits together question, not easily dealt with with proof texts. Um, the answer to that question is it depends how you think the whole story fits together. Uh, are there Old Testament believers in the new creation? Absolutely there are. Does it work exactly the same way for them as it does for us in this age? Well, ultimately yes, because the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is the rescuing package for humanity. 
How much did they know about that in advance? Answer, difficult to know. I'm not personally persuaded that every Old Testament real believer knew in detail in advance about what was unfolded in the New Testament. Uh, I, don't, I really don't think it works that way. Um, I take it that God has always responded generously towards those who've taken him at his word and believed his promises and trusted in him and not in themselves. But I don't think the content of an individual's head on that needs to be fully full of New Testament faith. Otherwise, why is it that when we get to the New Testament and the events that the Old Testament is promising and looking towards, there is such confusion about whether it's really arrived or not. Jesus walks onto the stage and nobody's saying, ah, of course it is. <laughs> That's what was promised. They go, hang on, is, is the, uh, uh, what's going on here? Is this it? <laughs> it's not till after the resurrection and Pentecost that the penny begins to drop. Even for those who saw him in the flesh, it's not till after the resurrection and Pentecost that, you, that the penny begins to drop. So you can have the saviour of the world right in front of your nose for three years and scratching your head, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it. Oh, now I get it, Acts chapter 2. <laughs> you see? So I take it, why should those Old Testament believers be better off than the ones who saw him in the flesh? Because the ones who saw him in the flesh didn't get him until after the resurrection. So I think, I, I think probably they don't have the full picture, but their faith, their faith in God's promises, people. I think. Um, was there another part to that question? I can't remember. Uh, well, I think I think it's just about okay, Abraham okay. as an example. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <coughs> to, last night we had Second uh, Corinthians eight and nine in relation to uh, money and giving. Uh, there's two questions here. I'll, I'll read them both because they're uh, both on that subject. Uh, you talked about money, <coughs> or giving money uh, away, being countercultural, and being generous with our money. Does this letter give us any direction? as how to give wisely as well as generously. For example, not fostering a dependency culture in <coughs> world countries. And then uh, the other question, uh, money has come up a lot. Uh, this has been helpful and is not often discussed in church. Can you recommend any books or resources um, in dealing with <coughs> handling money? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's deal with the resources first. There are some very helpful books on this subject. Uh, it's a little while since I trawled the market for that. Two that I have found helpful are Craig Blomberg's Neither Poverty Nor Riches. That's a very good book. Uh, also, what's the name of the Australian guy? Um, it'll come to me in a moment. Oh, he's written stuff on 1 Corinthians as well. Used to be at St. I uh, used to be at St. Uh, Aberdeen. I'll try and remember in a I'll try and remember as we get the penny may drop in a moment as we go through. Uh, there's an Australian guy who's written some really helpful stuff on uh, on greed and idolatry and um, and things to do with money. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh. I'm just getting old. I'm really sorry about that. It may come up in a minute. Brian Rosner. Brian Rosner. <laughs> It's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> so I have a senior processing moment there. It's in there. It's in the file somewhere. It's just finding it. Brian Rosner's books on, on, on money are quite stimulating as well. So I would recommend those, Craig Blomberg and Brian Rosner. Uh, no doubt you'll find other good stuff if you, if you look around. I don't think this does give us much direct help on how to do it wisely. Paul, uh, what it would say, I think, is that Paul is concerned for the gospel in the world. And that's a helpful thing to think about. And he's concerned for, quite strategically, for the gospel in the world. It's a big project, the, um, the collection, pulling it all together, organising it, sending people. Expensive, I imagine, 
to, to make all that happen. Lots of toing and froing and communication. Um, <clears throat> it's a big project, but it's got a particular big, big aim in mind. So I think, again, this is, often we get tied up with money because we're not sure where every penny should go. Um, sometimes I think we find that slightly anxiety-provoking. How much should I give to my church? How much should I give to missionary societies? How much should I give to individuals? I think, guys, we need to relax a bit. <laughs> Am I using my money for the Lord? Can I do useful things for the gospel? It's good to pray, Lord, show me things that I can usefully do with my money, that I, that I believe in, that are good gospel things. Um, we're often not very good at the relief of hardship amongst other Christians. That's a thing to think about. Often we label as Christian over there in the world people who may not really be believers. So, for example, um, all the Christians in inverted commas who've been kicked out of Syria and Iraq and all that stuff, there's a lot of... There's a Christian label attached to that in the popular press, but there may not be all that much genuine faith in Christ there. That doesn't mean not help them. It just means don't necessarily think that's a massive gospel enterprise if you're investing in relief for them and so on. So be gospel-hearted and generous. I think that's what this letter would say. Be generous and gospel-hearted. Okay. Uh, there's other information to find elsewhere, however. Look at Craig Blomberg's book, will help you with about, about the wisdom area uh, quite a lot. Uh, how do we both stand for truth as well as strive for unity, which are two biblical commands uh, in the church? Um, the question kind of presupposes that truth and unity might be at odds with one another. Um, and I suppose practically they often are. We like to have unity as human beings. And so we tend to pursue unity as a thing. And that comes over into church as well. We often pursue unity where there isn't really unity. And that's why I think truth and unity come into conflict with one another because um, what is the unity we have as Christians? We are one in Christ Jesus. Those who belong to him are one with one another in him. Um, and so, uh, for example, Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4, please, quickly. Um, Ephesians 1, 2, 3 is all about how God has created in Christ one new humanity. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have unity with other Christians. It's not something that has yet to be attained. You've got it. Maintain it rather than attain it. It's not something you have to work at. It's something you have to work to keep, to keep good. And then look at all his reasons. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One, 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 one. He goes through there. You belong together. You are one in Christ. Maintain it. I think we often uh, find ourselves in situations with Christians where... For example, in debates about church unity, we're looking at denominational structures and trying to attain unity that sometimes is not there because we're not all Christian. Um, and that's a problem. <laughs> so sometimes we abandon truth at the expense of institutional unity where there isn't really any significant unity to be had because we don't agree with one another. Um, how does Paul develop it in Ephesians uh, 4 and 5? Well, here's the truth thing. Um, where are we? So, 
also that we, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. Rather, 15, truthing in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head. In other words, we belong to him already. We've got to speak the truth to one another in loving ways and build that oneness, if you like. Um, just um, rehearse the question again quickly. I'm not really sure I've covered that. How do we both stand for truth and strive for unity? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you have to... You have to you, there is no real unity without truth. Um, if you can't agree with one another, you're not really united. Having said that, Christians come in all sorts, real Christians come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Brothers and sisters, you just need to get out of it if you don't believe that. Real Christians come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And sometimes genuine believers are genuinely quite different from one another. And we've got to find ways of expressing unity between genuine believers that doesn't mean, well, I'll be united to them as long as they become exactly the same as me. You know, we have our differences and we've got, to, we've got to learn to live with those. And so that's where distinguishing what is really important in somebody's belief framework. Is this a person who trusts in Jesus, who loves the Lord Jesus? I've got to call them my brother or sister. They may be weird in all kinds of ways. And I may be weird in all kinds of ways. But we've got to call one another Christian and relate to one another as though we are. That's tricky sometimes. <clears throat> Unity does not mean uniformity. Yeah. <clears throat> sums it up. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the warning signs that a church is presenting a gospel which is not cross-centered and more in line <clears throat> with the false apostles' teaching uh, than what we've heard of Paul's? Uh, what sort of questions should I ask about the teaching or ministry of the church that I'm part of? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Those are not questions that can be answered quickly, often. Sometimes they can. You know, if you wander into a church and the minister says, I no longer believe in Jesus, well, you know, you know, you know where you are then. Usually they don't do that, because usually people stop coming immediately <laughs> when they do that. Uh, usually it's more subtle than that. What are the kind of warning signs? Well, they're various, I think. Um, it is helpful if a church has a habit of opening the Bible, reading through a book, teaching through a book. Why is that helpful? Because it means that you don't avoid the things that are difficult to say. Um, that you don't sidestep things like judgment, which is very easy to sidestep. I'd rather not talk about that if I didn't have to, um, because I know it's going to provoke reaction. I'd rather not talk about sexuality stuff in an age which is so driven by sexuality stuff. You know, I know it's going to offend somebody. So I think, um, is your regular Bible ministry in your church a Bible ministry that just deals with the Bible? Or is it always picking and choosing? Are all the sermons topical sermons? Now, there's nothing wrong with having some topical sermons. Indeed, there's a great merit in having from time to time topical sermons which pull things together from all over the Bible. But if all the sermons are topical sermons, it's very easy just to be selective about the things that you'll talk about or not. So what's the preaching pattern like? Two, uh, what's the profile of the minister like? Does everything center around him? Is he the center of activity? Is he where the action happens? Uh, is he always talking about himself and his experiences? Or is this a congregation in which people are every Sunday being, being, look at the Lord Jesus, look at him, look at what he's done, look at him. He's the one you need. He's the one you need to trust. He's the one you need to depend on. Don't depend on me, depend on him. That's a much, much, much better thing to see. So just beware that the personality-driven uh, ministry. It doesn't, mean it's, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but watch out. There are, there are dodgy things there, potentially. Uh, what else? Oh, things like, is it controlling? 
Uh, does everybody toe the line? Is this a church in which debate and question and discussion is encouraged? Or are people too scared to ask questions? Lest they look stupid or are looked down upon? Or is it scared? Scared to talk? That's not a good sign. Um, uh, subtle things. Mm-hmm. You, you can only, I think, tell them over, over time. But I think those would be, good, those would be quite good signs. Okay. Uh, you mentioned yesterday that there is uh, not yet glory for the church, that there is uh, the cross or the messiness uh, of it. Uh, what about um, 5.17 where Paul says, already you're a new creation. Yeah. How do these uh, two things go together? Yep. Um, <clears throat> uh, Paul's theological framework is that there are two ages now. In this, age, in this gospel age, there are two ages on top of each other. There is this present world age which is carrying on and which will lead us all to death. You know, you're not going to escape death because you're a Christian. Um, that belongs to this present world age. There is, at the same time, a new age which has already started. Uh, we're in Ephesians, so look at Ephesians chapter 1. Look at his description of uh, Christians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What has God done for us? Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to this, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Apparently that's true of you if you're a Christian. There is a sense in which you are located somewhere else at the moment in a realm that you can't see Uh, participating in a reality which you can't yet see. Same is true in Colossians. Just flip over to Colossians 3. Extraordinary statement, Colossians 3.1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then, ping, you also will appear with him in glory. Isn't that an extraordinary assessment of reality for the Christian? You're dead, and you've got a new life hidden with Christ in God, which when he appears, whoop, it will appear. That's the sense in which we now have new creation. We are genuinely linked to the risen Christ. We have genuinely in some sense gone through death and resurrection with him and belong to him in the heavenly realms and are waiting the unfolding of that new age when he's visible that will be visible about us so i take it that we are in a really strange overlap period in human history where the old world age is still running but something new is broken in Anyone with faith in Christ, new creation has happened. Can you see it yet? When will you see it? When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will see all that that means. Um, so I think, that's what I, I think that's what I do with that. You, there is a kind of big now, not yet thing going on for the Christian believer. So you can read that verse, if anyone's in Christ. He's a new creation and feel totally discouraged. Well, I look just like the old creation. I'm, you know, in fact, I'm getting worse day by day. Gravity is taking over. You know, <laughs> doesn't look like new creation now, does it? But one day it will. Okay. Inevitably. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what judgment will we face as Christians, taking into account that Christ has borne our sin? Yep. Um, <clears throat> 
I take it that that uh, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, particularly referring to um, the, the assessment in the end of Christian ministries. So I'd be a little cautious before expanding that to mean absolutely everything in every respect. Um, what the last day will be like for Christians is, I think, to some degree, a mysterious thing. Because we are confident in Christ that all will go well on the last day by virtue of what he has done for us. And yet there is language suggestive of assessment. And it is very difficult, very difficult to, to paint a little picture mentally of the last day that includes properly all of that stuff. What I think we can be confident of is, um, just look at 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. What I think we can be confident of is that in Christ, the last day verdict will be a positive one. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, as it will, and the mortal puts on immortality, as it will, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Uh, it hadn't dawned on me for ages until recently what this implies. Paul is saying that the perishable Christian body will be raised at the resurrection imperishable. Think of the implications of that. What does he say? Raised imperishable and changed. That must mean a positive verdict in the end. Mustn't it? How do you get a resurrection body, new, imperishable, changed, unless the verdict of the last day has been a positive one? So whatever our picture of assessment at the end, Paul is saying in this chapter, you can be very confident that a faith in Christ person who at the moment struggles with the, imp with the perishable nature of human existence and their Christian life will one day, will, must put on immortality in the end. And there's a great comfort there. The resurrection when it happens will be to transformed new life, not to this old body facing a mm, will I, won't I let you in judgment. I think that's very encouraging. But I think it is a, a big and mysterious subject to some degree. A uh, question here about maybe when you're a younger Christian, I'll just sort of summarize because it's quite long. Uh, when, when you're a younger Christian, having a desire to do so much for God, to shake the world, um, but maybe in looking back now, I reg feeling like a failure, um, having achieved uh, little of what you had hoped, um, how can we cope with this? Yeah, that's really tricky, isn't it? We, we, are, we, we turn out in time to be much more disappointing than we thought we would be. 
That's my experience of growing older. I find that I'm much more disappointing than I thought I would be. I didn't have grand plans either. I'm just much more disappointing than I thought I would be. I think we live in an age which tells us all the time, you can be what you want. All you need to do is want something enough. Go for it. Live the dream. Dream big dreams. That's what the world around us thinks, folks. And sometimes that flows over into the Christian church in unprocessed ways. Now, it is right to want big things and dream big dreams. But we need to put that properly in a biblical context. Think of the Apostle Paul's gospel mission. It's very easy to look back on that as, oh, what an amazing guy. Look at all the ground he covered. Look at all the things he did. And it was amazing. But look how many of his churches end up, ended up in great difficulty in a few years' time. Uh, the last thing on his list at the end of his sufferings in 1 Corinthians 11 is my daily anxiety for all the churches. That's what my plan has come to. Perpetual anxiety, because they're not getting on very well. We've just got to add some biblical realism to our dreams, I think. Um, Sometimes the kind of Christian dreaming dreams that we have is just driven by the world around us, not so much by the Bible. Um, Ephesians is really interesting again. Just back to Ephesians if you're kind of in the vicinity. Ephesians 1, 2, 3, huge theology, massive, from before the beginning of the foundation to every age that is to come, huge scope of theology. What does Paul want the believers to do as a result of that theology? Uh, Well, chapter 4, verse 25, first specific application Tell the truth to one another. I think oh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty small application for that big theology. Tell the truth to one another. Verse 28, don't steal. <laughs> Stop stealing. Stop letting corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Don't go to bed angry. <laughs> it's very interesting, isn't it, that the big unity-building, unity-maintaining applications in chapter 4 are all actually stop lying, stop stealing, stop going to bed angry. They're so ordinary. At one level, they seem so small. But actually, how are you doing with your lying problem? How are you doing with your stealing problem? Actually, they're really difficult to get on top of, and they're really antisocial. Uh, so you need all that big theology to drive those really ordinary applications. And sometimes I think we dream huge, big-scale dreams, when actually the Bible is looking at much smaller-scale relational stuff. That's how God works most of the time. People who are unusually honest, people who are unusually transparent, unusually generous. I have a friend who was a lawyer who was converted through the witness of a fellow lawyer. (laughs) He had remained antagonistic for a long time. What convinced him about Christianity? He said, John never lied to clients, ever. In that respect, he was totally unlike every other lawyer in the department. There was something, I had to know what was different. He never lied to clients. You see, that's a big thing. <laughs> it's a big thing, that. So I think sometimes we just have to get, make our dreams biblical dreams rather than world dreams in biblical clothes. Mm-hmm. And don't despair if you don't achieve big things. And you'll be a disappointment. In Christ, that's okay. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'll ask this. Uh, a lot of the focus over the weekend has been on ministry or yep. slash apostles. But what does it look like to be a faithful church member who aims at a cross-shaped pattern? Well, um, that's a very good question. There's a lot in the New Testament about ministry. 
1 and 2 Corinthians are all about ministry stuff. Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy are all about ministry stuff. Titus is all about ministry stuff. And you can think to yourself, well, that's okay for ministers, but I'm not a minister. Um, Two things to say about that, at least, maybe three. Uh, One, Paul expects in 1 Corinthians that his pattern of life is a pattern of life for churches as well as ministers. Uh, Look at uh, chapter... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. This is at the end of the food sacrifice to idols section. And look what he says as his summary statement in 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, in that instruction in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, is he saying everybody like me is to become an itinerant missionary and wandering around the Mediterranean? He's not meaning that. What he is meaning is that just like him, every member of the Corinthian church and the Corinthian church together are supposed to be living out the 31, 32, 33 pattern. Namely, We are trying to please everyone in every way, not for our own advantage, but so that that might be saved. That's our big agenda in life. doesn't mean that all our time in every detail is spent doing that, but that is the overarching game plan. Why am I here? Why are we here as a church? For the salvation of other people and for one another's salvation. So there's to be a big overarching agenda that colors everything we do. That doesn't mean we all do the same stuff. But I think if we are not clear about the apostles' agenda as these letters give it to us, we become unclear about what we should be as churches and what we should be as individuals. It does not mean we are all to do exactly the same thing in every detail, but it does mean the same agenda is for everyone. So we do need to teach these ministry letters. For that reason, there is an agenda here that we all have to share, even though we may not do the same work in every respect. Uh, The second thing is um, that um, the pragmatic issue, that if churches do not understand ministry, they will not promote ministry in their churches. if churches don't understand what kind of pattern of ministry they ought to be, their minister ought to be pursuing, when they next select a minister, they will not. They will, they will, chances are they won't select a minister with those priorities. Churches get the teachers they choose, and so it's absolutely critical that churches understand what ministry is about. Otherwise, they'll they'll choose teachers who don't want to do the right kind of ministry, and that will perpetuate itself in unhelpful ways. So I think for those two reasons, we are to be about it corporately and individually, even though not all in exactly the same ways. And secondly, we are to promote it in our churches, and that means we've got to understand it. Um, Often Christian teachers are a bit shy of teaching about ministry because they think, well, if I tell my congregation what my job's supposed to be, they'll think I'm complaining or wanting a rise or, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Guys, if you get into ministry, do not be ashamed to teach your church about what your job is. (laughs) Because if they don't understand what your job is, they won't understand what their job is. (laughs) And if they don't understand what you're supposed to be doing, they won't promote it while you're doing it, and they may not choose a guy who's trying to do the right thing the next time. 